0: Blog Talk
1: Radio. Hello, this is Stephen James. Welcome to the Story Blender, the place where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. And I'm really excited because today's guest is one of the most accomplished and versatile authors that we've ever had on the show. Douglas Preston's literary career encompasses both award-winning true crime nonfiction books on archaeology and lost civilizations, and of course, the many New York Times best-selling novels that he has written with Lincoln Child. Having lived in Italy, Douglas researched and wrote the acclaimed book, The Monster of Florence, and became an expert on the Amanda Knox case. And in the course of his career, he has explored lost temples in the jungles of Cambodia, been the first to enter a tomb in the Valley of the Kings in Egypt, and ridden on horseback across Thousands of miles of the American Southwest which earned him membership in the Elite Long Riders Guild. He's an avid hiker, an adventurer, and one of America's premier novelists. Doug, thanks for joining us today.
0: Well thank you, Stephen.
1: I'm excited. I was I was telling you uh a minute before we came on the air, just reading through your bio makes me makes me think it sounds like a book you've already written. It's it's exciting. It's neat to see uh, your travels, but also how you weave in the stuff that you 've learned and personal experiences and the stories you write.
0: Well, I managed to get myself in a lot of trouble from time to time
1: now, I want to hear about this being the first to enter one of the tombs in the king uh, or, or the kings in Egypt, the valley of the kings so now they had they had opened this up and they allowed you to go in first
0: well it was uh it was a, it was a tomb. Known as KV5 in the Valley of the Kings, and it was uh, the very the entrance to the tomb was known going back into the 18th century. But in in the late 90s, it was discovered that this what they thought was a very small tomb was in fact enormous, and it was actually the tomb of all the sons of Ramses the Great. Wow! So I did a story about that for the New Yorker magazine, and the archaeologist who was in charge of the excavation, an American named Kent Weeks, um, I wrote about him. So I showed up, and I spent two weeks, and he had already mapped 97 rooms in this tomb. Wow. Most of which had, had not been opened up yet, and there were still many more rooms to enter. And at a certain point, I asked him, you know, would it be possible for me to be the first one in one of those rooms? And he said, oh, no, oh, my God, no, that would, we could never allow that. I said, well, well, please, I'll write about it in the New Yorker. It'll be a really cool ending to the piece. And he thought about it, and he said, well, okay. So we went That's into the tomb, great. this huge tomb. It's actually one of the largest tombs ever found in Egypt in terms of, of you know, the spatial area. Yeah. And we went way in the back of the tomb, and he picked out the most insignificant, most unimportant-looking doorway and he directed the workmen, okay, open a hole at the top of the doorway, and, uh, which they did. And then he had an electric light bulb put in there on a wire, you know, in a cage, yeah. through that, that hole at the very top. And then I said, well, how am I going to get up there? There's no ladder. And he said something in Arabic to his workmen. They picked me up, literally shoved me head first <laughs> through the hole, and I <laughs> fell down on the other side. And then Kent was outside, and I looked around, and he said, well, what do you see? And I said, oh, my God, everywhere, the gleam of gold. He was <laughs> like, what? Oh, get out of here. Bullshit. That's not – you're just lying. And I said, yeah, I'm just lying. It's empty. It's been robbed. The the tomb had been robbed in antiquity. So, But later Kent said to me, God, you gave me the worst five seconds of my entire life of an, as an archaeologist – Thinking, I'd just given this the schmuck of a reporter the the greatest discovery in in Egypt, you know, giving it away. So, but it it was pretty cool. It was uh, that was something.
1: Yeah, it's great. Now you didn't come back with any curse of the mummy on you or anything like that. I hope.
0: Well, the uh, no, I didn't. Although um, the. The, the, the tomb is when you go into this into this tomb, like most of the tombs in the valley of the kings, but this one in particular it's about a hundred degrees in there, and it's it's a hundred percent humidity
1: oh so my the dust
0: turns to mud on your skin it's because you're sweating and there's dust the workmen are working' in this incredible clouds of dust and the archaeologist uh, Kent uh, got a disease uh, you know he got like it's kind of like a silicosis or something, but mm. called it t- Tomb Lung, <laughs> which is from breathing all this dust and getting it into his lungs. He had to go to the doctor, and the doctor was very worried about him because of this, 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 all the dust he had in his lungs. So that was kind of the curse.
1: Yeah, just no, that's, dust. that's too bad, but that's a good name for a, a novel right there, Tomb Lung, right there. So I should say, also, before we really get rolling, just uh, on behalf of so many other authors, just to thank you for your work of encouraging not only aspiring writers, but also being an advocate in the publishing industry for authors' rights. You've taken a lead on this, kind of uh, out front, and it's great uh, great having you in our corner. And I know sometimes it's caused some controversy for you, but you've really done a lot to try and um you know take on the big guys and say look authors deserve to be paid for what they do a certain amount and 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 so thank you for for doing that and for putting your your head out there and
0: Well thank you for the kind words I Yeah you know I am very concerned uh you know I was lucky uh, you know I became a best selling author before the whole digital revolution occurred but unfortunately you know we now live in a world where it's really hard for for Debut authors and struggling midlist authors to get gain traction, uh, for no fault of their own. There are absolutely fantastic authors out there who should be, you know, should be best-selling authors who can't get traction. And it's not because of the books they're writing. It's because the economics, the whole marketplace, is, has become very disfavorable to authors making a decent living yeah. on a number of levels. I mean, it's the, the dot com. Companies like Amazon and Google, it's uh, piracy, it's, you know, all kinds of things are really conspiring to make it very difficult for authors to earn a living. So that's, that's been a big concern of mine, because if, if an author can't make a living writing books, he's, he or she's going to go out and make a living doing something else and make a lot more money at it. <laughs> so um, we're losing it. It's a form of censorship. I mean, we're really, you know, books not written are are kind of a form of censorship in the sense mm. that those ideas will never be heard. So I think it's a serious problem in our society right now where authors are just not valued and also the, the it, people don't care, you know, to support authors in writing books so that they can make a living at it.
1: Yeah, and, and um, you know, here's my book, it's for sale for 99 cents and I look at stuff like that, and I think, "There's how could I make a living? <laughs> I, can't, I can't even imagine, you know, s- selling books and so on for, for that much yeah. money. And then, you know, well, you have just so many books. Just to...
0: it, It's true, and it's it's really hard. And also, you know, there's so many authors now being asked to write for free. And yeah. if you hire a plumber to come into your house and fix a leaky pipe, you don't say, well, because I, I'm such a famous person or because I have such a big house – you should do the work for free because it'll help your, your, your career. But that's what they do to writers all the time. They say, oh, we want you to write for free, um, and you know, we'll expose you, we'll get you published, you know, you'll, right. people will learn your name, and then it's very tempting for writers to do it. In fact, I do it all the time. Yeah. So.
1: so I think I was first exposed to your work with, by seeing the movie Relic and I think a, a lot of people who are listening uh, might say, oh, I read that book, or I remember seeing seeing that movie. And Tell us a little bit about how you and um, Lincoln Child first kind of came up with the idea of that story Relic. I think you, weren't you working at the museum at that time?
0: I was. I was working at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. That was my first job out of college, and I was writing a little column in the Magazine they published called Natural History, and Lincoln was an editor at St. Martin's Press. He read this column and he called me up on the phone and asked me if I would write a book about the Museum of Natural History, a nonfiction book about the history, the explorers, and all that. Yeah,
1: interesting, yeah.
0: And I did that, and it became Dinosaurs in the Attic. And then at a certain point, I gave Link a tour of the museum at midnight. I had access to a lot of the halls even after closing. I wasn't really supposed to, but, you know, I did. Hey. Yeah. And he he loved it, and he turned to me, and he said, my God, this is the scariest building in the world. We we need to write a novel, a thriller set in this building. And I said, well, I don't know how to write a thriller. I just write nonfiction. He said, well, that's all right. I do know how to write a thriller. You know, I've been I'm editing thrillers and mystery books for St. Martin's Press for years, yeah, and I've read so many bad manuscripts, and I know exactly <laughs> what not to do. And he said the only thing left is what to do, the good stuff. <laughs> so, so as a lark, we kind of wrote Relic together, and and it was you know made into a movie by Paramount Pictures, and you know it was a success.
1: So. Yeah. Now, how do you capture? You know, if I think of a museum, I think of kind of a dusty place. The way, we, we, with things kind of behind glass, and how do you capture that idea of exploration and adventure when you're doing a setting like now? There's plenty of intrigue I can think of, but but when I think museum, I think dusty and old, and maybe not that exciting. But that's not at all how you guys approach that, or uh, any of the other books that you've written. How do you well, grab hold of that? Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a, that's a good question. You know, how do you take a setting? And make it exciting, you know. Um, yeah. And well, 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 the museum setting actually was a good setting because there are subterranean tunnels. I mean, oh sure, they really yeah. are. I mean, I didn't. We didn't make a lot of that up. There are these tunnels. There are these rooms. There are forgotten rooms that have been walled up, um, and then are broken into. And all of a sudden, the you know, during work, they'll break into some room that was walled up a hundred years ago and that nobody wow. knew existed because oh, there's
1: that's
0: no fun. no actual blueprint of the museum. I mean, it's 22 or 23 interconnected buildings covering many acres of Manhattan. You know, it's uh, because it's been changed so many times, no one really knows what's there. But anyway, so it became, um, you know, how do you take this setting? And one of the things he said was, well, let's create a security system that if alarms go off that indicate something was stolen, the security system locks down that section of the museum so no one can leave. Yeah, great. Now that 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 is not how the museum works normally, but we thought we'll make it work this way and that way we'll have the system malfunction trapping all these people with some really bad thing happening <laughs> in this while they're trapped in the museum something is killing them. And uh, that's how the idea got started.
1: Now this is related, I think, a little bit, and that is your stories uh, develop uh, adventure and suspense. You're a master at, at building up suspense. Now, But you've also written The Monster of Florence and a number of nonfiction books. Um, how do you develop or use the tools of fiction writing, say, how do you develop suspense when someone already knows how a story will end?
0: Very good question. Um, the You know, I've been very fortunate in writing these, these fiction books. When, when I first started writing fiction, I thought, this is crazy. I'm not a fiction writer. Um, you know, These thrillers are not going to win me a Nobel Prize. Why am I doing this? Well, it turns out I loved telling stories through fiction because you're, you you're free to make up the facts. You, it doesn't have to be true. It only has to be plausible
1: for right. fiction
0: but I learned all these techniques in fiction that I could then bring into nonfiction. Now, there's nothing about making up the facts. You can't make up any facts in nonfiction. You have to be absolutely adhered to the truth, but you can organize the facts in a way that make for a very exciting story so that it reads a bit like fiction. I mean, you know, I think some of the greatest nonfiction books out there, you know, The Perfect Storm, The into the Wild. I mean, these are books that are like novels in the earth, on the edge of your seat and you, you don't know what's going to happen next and you're absolutely gripped and absorbed in the story. Yeah. And so those are the kinds of nonfiction books I like to write. Um, and, I mean, like, for example, The Monster of Florence is a, is a nonfiction story about a serial killer who murdered – Young lovers in the Tuscan hills around Florence in the '70s and '80s—really horrific serial killer—he makes Jack the Ripper look like you know Mr. Captain Kangaroo, mm. but um, and he was never caught. And it's the longest and most expensive criminal case in Italian history. It's still going. So that you know, there's a story that lends itself to to a novelistic structure. Oh, sure, but. With absolute adherence to the facts, you can't ever even depart one iota from the facts, which is a bit of a straitjacket. But still, um, it's you—you um, you can still—it's what you choose to put in, it's how you organize them, it's how you think about the story that makes it exciting, more exciting that,
1: than yeah. Now that book won awards both in Italy and the U.S for its excellence and for its journalistic storytelling. So congratulations on that. And well thank you. Yeah, I remember I was researching um I was researching, researching serial killers for one of the novels I was writing and I came across the the Monster of Florence, but I didn't read your book at the time, but I remember that that case. I remember reading about that case and I, I was intrigued by it and I just think that you, that you guys dove into it and told that that's that's It
0: was interesting. I wrote the book with an Italian journalist, Mario Spezzi, who uh, had covered the monster um, killings for the local La Nazione, which is a local Tuscan newspaper, from the beginning. So we had a huge archive of information. I never could have gotten this stuff on my own. But um, it was really interesting um, to work with him and to see how journalists in Italy work. They have very different uh, way of working and it was
1: How that? Really
0: that? Well, for one thing, the uh, ethics of journalism in Italy are very different than the United States. Um, <laughs> I'll give you one example.
1: Okay. After
0: great. after Mario and I decided to, to to write this story, I write for the New Yorker magazine, so I proposed to the New Yorker that we that they do a story about the monster of Florence and they agreed and I got the assignment. And even though Mario didn't read or write or speak English, he could write in Italian and I could translate into English so we could be co-authors of the piece. Mm. Well, we submitted the piece and my editor at The New Yorker said, what is this? What is this bullshit? You've identified a person you think is the monster of Florence in your piece, but you didn't go and interview him. You didn't (laughs) ask him, are you the monster of Florence? And Mario said, well, I'm not going to go. And asked a serial killer if he's a monster of Florence. I live in his territory. I mean, there's, I have a daughter. Forget it. Huh. And the New Yorker said, "Well, if you're not, if you're so cowardly, if you're such poor journalists oh. that you, you know, I mean, we have journalists in a war in war zones getting shot at, and you're afraid to interview some little serial killer. What's the matter with you? <clears> Get in there, interview him, or forget the or forget it. We won't publish your article. You know, you're you're working for the New Yorker. You're not working for you know some." podunk paper somewhere. Yeah. So Mario said, well, I will interview him, but I'm going to do it under a fake name. Now, <laughs> in America, as a journalist, that's absolutely... You could never do that. Sure. You just can't do it. It's against the, every ethical... And I thought about it. And I thought, shit. Um, well, you know, we are in Italy.
1: <laughs> and, uh, so Mario... Went in Rome.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, so Mario went in. We went in. We surprised this guy. Quarter to ten at night. We only had one shot at interviewing him. We knew where he lived. We couldn't call him up and say, oh, we want to interview you and ask you if you're the monster of Florence. So we just showed up at his apartment at quarter to ten, hit the buzzer. Mario gave a fake name. We came up into the apartment, and he looked at Mario, and he said, oh, wait. I must have misheard your name over the buzzer because you're Mario Spezzi. You're the guy who wrote all those articles about the monster of Florence. <laughs> I've read I've read everything you've written.
1: Oh wow.
0: Like, uh oh. So so yeah, so the fake name idea went out the window. But the other thing that Italian journalists do that an American journalist can't ever do is they pay people for interviews. Hmm. I mean I had to pay five hundred thousand lira to this guy in the monster case to interview him, and that uh, wow. he expected to be paid. I mean, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, you know, that was back before the Euro, but he expected to be paid. And I thought, God, you know, I, this is not something that, that you do as an American journalist. You just don't pay for news. Because you, if, if you do pay, it, you, you never know what you're going to get. I mean, someone could lie to you if you could be taken, you know. People only give good information if they're doing it for free, the idea is.
1: But, right, right.
0: In Italy, they all expect to be paid.
1: Um, well, you have to tell us, in the interview, did you find out anything revealing? Well, yes. Uh, very
0: <laughs> revealing. Yeah, Actually, it was quite horrific. It was the most, the, the, first of all, it was the strangest interview I ever, I've ever ever done as a journalist. You would think a, a, a serial killer would be creepy and weird and strange, you know, like they are on TV. Sure. You know, like the Silence of the Lambs. Not so at all. This guy was incredibly handsome, rugged, self-assured, self-confident, arrogant. Um, He kind of exuded this working-class charm. He was a bit like Robert De Niro, you know, the young Robert De Niro. He was cocky, self-sure, and and even when it became obvious during the interview that we thought he was a monster of Florence, he never stopped smiling, never Mm -hmm. lost control. He gave us. He teased us with information that only the monster could have known. According wow. to Mario, who knew the case backwards and forwards, and then at the very end, Mario did ask him, "Are you the monster of Florence?" And I, I really can't repeat his answer. It's it's just too horrific yeah. to say on the radio. It's too awful. But it was just it was scary. And then yeah. he he then switched into the informal in Italian, like he was speaking to a child. And he, Leaned over Mario and he said, "You know, I may be smiling, Mario, but don't forget, I don't, I don't mess around. I don't kid around. Hmm. I'm, I'm a deadly serious person. Wow. You know. <laughs> yeah. We left.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose you did. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, it reminded me of uh, one time I was, I was doing some research on voodoo and um. And for one of my novels, and I ended up finding this voodoo high priestess that I went in to interview. And it wasn't quite as chilling, but it was pretty unsettling to go into her peristyle and, and ask her if I could talk to her some questions. And she said, well, let me go consult my um, Loa. It's like, the demons or whatever that they try to consult with and so she went downstairs to try and consult with them to find out if she should talk to me or not
0: oh really and, <laughs> yeah yeah it
1: came back up and she yeah. said my law my law has told me i can talk with you but we need to have you do a donation to our peristyle or our, mm-hmm. their their worship place and i said oh, I yeah. i'm not going to do that okay. she said and i want to be able to verify anything you write i said no no, but my made me think of that. It's like people expect to get paid for
0: Yeah, for their people time. Are a little some people are naive and you know, you in America you can kind of explain it to them. But in Italy because everyone expects to be paid, they they don't uh you can't explain it. You just pay them.
1: And of course, while you were there, then also you became quite involved in researching the Amanda Knox case and um I don't know if you want to talk about that for a moment or not, but I think wasn't it the same? Uh, was it the same prosecutor who had worked? Mm-hmm. Yeah, tell it, us about. Yes,
0: that. it was. Yeah, exactly. It was the same prosecutor. Well, what happened was um, Mario and I got into trouble in Italy with our research into the Monster of Florence case, primarily because Mario went on television in Italy. He's a he's quite a famous journalist, and was on one of the most highly rated shows in all of Italy, and he ridiculed the police investigation. Ah. He said they were incompetent. Now the head of that investigation was a Sicilian, and I mean that really—you don't ridicule a Sicilian and think you're going to get away with it. So the next thing that happened was the police broke into Mario's apartment. They took his computers, they took all his discs, they took all the research we'd accumulated, and then they—they—they they, they, they didn't arrest him. But then they—they—they—they they, they, they called me on my cell phone while I was walking through the streets of Florence one morning, and they said, you know, is this Mr. Preston? I said, yes. They said, well, this is the police. Where are you? We're coming to get you. (laughs) And I started laughing. I said, "Who who is this? Bullshit. Get out of here. And they said, no, Mr. Preston, this is the police. This is not a joke. We're coming to get you. Don't make us have to find you. That would not be a good thing. So I told them where I was, they came and got me, and they hauled me in for this interrogation in front of this judge, Mignini, Giuliano Mignini, who was a conspiracy theorist, I mean, I was interrogated for hours, in Italian, no interpreter, no no lawyer present, and, uh, and then charged with a whole bunch of crimes at the end of the interrogation, because they said I was lying, and that I was obstructing justice and interfering with a police investigation, I mean, they had a whole list of Felonies that I'd committed, but um, so that judge, Mignini, was the same uh, judge in the Amanda Knox case, and he had the same kind of theory of the Amanda Knox case that he had for the Monster of Florence case. Both, you know, involving satanic rituals, satanic, you know, murderous, satanic, you know. You know, chanting and rituals and all the rest where someone is sacrificed to the devil. Um, and crazy theories. I mean, the evidence did not bear out, either one of them, either in the Monster case or in Amanda Knox's case.
1: And so, as far as the felonies, those eventually got dropped. Mm. I yeah, hope. Yeah, they
0: were... Well, what happened was, <laughs> So he charged me with all these felonies he read out from this big book, and they all wrote it down, very official. The Italians really know how to arrest you in a dramatic way. (laughs) And I was sitting there thinking, I'm never going to see my wife and kids again who were actually out having lunch, waiting for me to get out of this thing. So then Mignini said, I'm going to lift the indictment to allow you to leave Italy, Hmm. which I took to mean was, you know, you better get the hell out of town. Yeah. So the next morning I left with my family to the United States, um, and then I had to spend many thousands of euros on a lawyer just to find out what the charges were against me. You can't yeah. find out these charges free. Italy, a sort of crazy justice system. And then they arrested Mario, and they charged him with being the monster of Florence.
1: Oh, my goodness. <laughs>
0: And it was really crazy. That is um, anyway, a book. my book tells yeah. the whole story. It's the most insane thing you've ever heard. I mean, it's some people read the book and they say, how can this possibly be true?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's fantastic. That's great. Yeah, we hope people will definitely pick that up. And earlier you mentioned something that got me thinking, and that was some of the storytelling principles that related to fiction also pl- apply to, uh, to writing nonfiction. That's that's engaging and engrossing. What, what would you say one or two of those are that you found, you know, especially helpful once you began to write fiction that really enhanced the nonfiction you were working on?
0: That's a really good question. And um, the, the answer is, and I, it sounds a little obvious, but in nonfiction you have to find the story in the mass of facts. Hmm. And in fact, in nonfiction you're going to do so much research that 90% of what you find out is not going to go into the book. Yeah, It's, 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 it's a process of paring down or of, of sort of parsing or you know, carving something out of a – it's like you get a big lump of clay and you have to find the, the thing inside it. You, know, you have to carve away the, the extraneous stuff. So you have to tell a story and you have to think about telling the story at a dinner party where you have an audience – who are listening hmm. you know, are they going to keep listening you know, you, you've got to keep them going and so I always think to myself well, you know, how can I tell this story in an entertaining, interesting way that doesn't just string the facts together yeah. which is deadly you've got to, the facts have to be there and you have to work them in but you have to package them into a story so that people feel like they're being taken on a journey either a physical journey or a metaphysical journey so The Monster of Florence was kind of a metaphysical journey. But my last nonfiction book, The Lost City of the Monkey God, is very much a physical journey um, to a place that no one had ever been before, at least for 500 years.
1: You know, that was down in a jungle in Honduras, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we w- I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that story. And um, and uh, I would say, go ahead and, and tell us just a little bit about about that novel, or well, no, I mean that nonfiction book, and kind of what led you to write that?
0: Well, it was, it was, I was following this story for 20 years, this guy named Steve Elkins, who was obsessed with finding the legendary Lost City of the Monkey God, or sometimes called La Ciudad Blanca, the White City. Allegedly, somewhere in the mountains of eastern Honduras, where the thickest jungle in the world covers these absolutely spectacularly rugged mountain chains. And in these, in these mountains are interior valleys that have never been scientifically explored. It's among the last places on Earth um, that have not been explored by people recently. So Steve Elkin's idea was that he was going to um, explore three of these valleys, which he named Target 1, Target 2, and Target 3, Using a new technology called lidar, which oh, okay. can actually see through the jungle canopy, very expensive. It cost a million dollars to bring this plane down from the University of Houston with three engineers and a pilot. Um, extremely dangerous flying area because 80% of the cocaine being smuggled from South America into the United States is transshipped through this area because oh, it's so wow. remote. So, you know, the DEA and the Honduran military are patrolling the airspace and shooting down planes that don't respond to their, you know, demands to land. So, you know, we had to work with the Honduran government. We were working with the DEA um, so they knew who we were. Sure. But so, so Steve flew, you know, his team flew over three of these valleys, and in the first one they found a lost city. Hmm. And I've, it was incredible. I've never... I've been writing about archaeology for The New Yorker for a long time, and i've never ever and I never will again be part of a discovery like that where we we were the first ones to look at these computer images and we're like, Oh my god, they're pyramids, they're plazas, they're mounds there's there's terracing i mean they there's a lost city in this valley, huge, you know um you know over a square mile in extent, wow, so So that was in 2012, and then I was part of the 2015 ground expedition in there to explore the city on foot, and we found marvelous things, wonderful stuff. I couldn't believe what we were finding. Uh, It was just the people had walked out of the city 500 years ago, and nobody had been in this valley for half a millennium until we arrived. I mean, there was stuff lying on the ground, millions of dollars worth of stuff, no looting, no indication that people had been in there. The animals had never seen people before. They were unafraid. I've never seen <clears> that in my life. You know, animals are normally run away when you, when they see you. But yeah. here the animals came up to us, sometimes in a very hostile way. Like we had monkeys trying to drive us out of their campsite. They were pissed off that we were there. They didn't wow. like us. So.
1: Well yeah, that's The Lost City of the Monkey God and uh of course we want readers to check that out and um it's it's it sounds again just like um the plot of a great thriller, but it's it's nonfiction. And uh just even listening to you um, sort of share some of these anecdotes, you can tell that you're a natural storyteller that it just comes comes naturally because each of these stories is is powerful and and develops not just not just um interest but emotional resonance
0: well there is there you know this story again, it was like the monster of Florence where I fell into the into the story accidentally in this story, you know as a journalist covering the story, I was part of the team you know I was part of the first ones to get enter the city and so forth, but then very unexpectedly, it turned out that the valley was a hot zone of a very nasty and dangerous tropical disease oh, called no. Leishmaniasis. And two-thirds of the expedition came down with this disease, um, including Hondurans, British, and Americans alike, including myself, the archaeologists, everybody, the National Geographic photographer. We all got this horrible, incurable uh, disease. Wow. And, uh, you know, it was so it, it, it was a very interesting disease, and we were fortunate because the National Institutes of Health offered to treat everyone for free because they wanted to study us because we had a very unusual variant of the disease, and the, the fact that this valley was a hot zone was very interesting to, to them. So we all got free medical care at the NIH in Washington, a free hotel, free travel. Um, you know, they, they studied us, we, and we're still enrolled in this, um, in this uh, clinical study. Um, and they found out wonderful things about our disease, some interesting things that, that they'd never known before. So the last part of the book is really, it goes from being an archaeological mystery to being a medical mystery. And <laughs> wow. so in a sense, even though I didn't really like getting an incurable disease and I'm going to have to <laughs> live it for the rest of my life, I still was ha- grateful that as a journalist I could write about it and that it wasn't some boring disease like malaria or dysentery, but it was something really interesting, a flesh-eating parasite that destroys your face. I mean, that's pretty awful, but that's also kind of cool in a way. You know, <laughs> weird, <laughs> the way. Only,
1: only a writer or a storyteller or a journalist would say something like, that's pretty cool, too. <laughs> now, your fiction, um, you have a character, Special Agent Pendergast, and he's become quite an iconic literary figure. Um, when you write your, your novels with this special agent, I'm curious, how do you give readers both something old and something new? In other words, something that they've had before with this character, but also something new where you reveal more about him and make him more intriguing,
0: Ah, uh, well, that's a very, very good question. I can tell you're a novelist yourself because that's exactly the kind of question a novelist would ask. And it's a problem or a challenge that that we face every time we write a new novel is you can't just, ret- just re- reprise the character over and over again. The character has to grow. Right. The character has to more – the curtain has to be drawn back a little bit more. So the way we do it with Pendergast is in two ways. One is he comes from a very strange, complex, and bizarre family from New Orleans, a very wealthy, old French family with many, many skeletons in their closet. And so we can sometimes reveal things about his ancestry, his, his parents, his brother, who is a criminal um, you know they they kind of took two different directions. Pendergast became an FBI agent. His brother Diogenes became a criminal. Um, but there really isn't that much difference between them uh, in in a weird way. I mean Pendergast is has criminal he, he he understands criminals almost too well but so yes, we reveal a little bit more, and we also make sure that his character isn't static but grows. He learns. He learns from his experiences and he grows um, and his behavior changes a little bit from his life lifelong experiences. So those two things are how we keep him fresh.
1: I like that. You know, some people talk about do characters change in stories or do stories reveal characters? So there's sort of two different theories about it. And I tend to believe that If you are in these incredible adventures or life and death situations, that it will affect you, that it will change your perspective on things. I mean, if if you ended up having to shoot somebody, I mean, it would it would change you. You you would you would interpret things differently, probably interpret threats differently. And and so I like characters that that they're not just um, the exact same in every instance, but that they do develop. As a story, as a series progresses,
0: yeah, it seems exactly. more
1: natural and believable
0: well, it is, and and sometimes you have readers who say, "Wait a minute, you know Pendergast um, I don't like seeing his his uh, i i don't like seeing his failures, you know, in the beginning, Pendergast was a very, very accomplished FBI agent, maybe even too accomplished. he didn't make mistakes. Yeah. And uh, when he started making mistakes once in a while, we have readers complain, oh, you had to make a mistake. That's not consistent with his character. But no, it's that he faced a problem that was outside of his normal experience. And that's why he he made the mistake. And it revealed something about him Mm -hmm. that he would make that mistake. Um, He is not invulnerable. And then at other times we show Pendergast not making mistakes, but doing something that's wrong you know, mm-hmm. which you might say, gee, he shouldn't have done that. That was, that was kind of crazy. And then, you know, so so he is his own character. You know, people, there's no such thing as a perfect person, and Pendergast is definitely not a perfect, you know, character. He has his problems and his his blind spots and so forth, especially when it comes to women. He's, <laughs> he's so clever with ev- with everyone else But when it comes to romantic relationships He's a complete doofus
1: <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like my kind of guy So I understand there's a television series um, Under development um, Kind of centered around him
0: Yes, yes I. It's really exciting The series is called Pendergast And it's being developed by Paramount Pictures um, And the the executive producer is Gail Ann Hurd, who's terrific. She, you know, she produced Aliens, um, The Abyss, uh, the Terminator series. She was involved as a writer and a producer on those. She's also the chief, the top producer for The Walking Dead. I mean, she really is a talented, enormously talented producer. So, and the writer is John McLaughlin, who's an incredible writer, um, who wrote The Black Swan among other oh, movies yeah. and things. So. So we're really excited by that um it's moving along, and uh so far um it hasn't been green lighted um but we hope that that will happen soon.
1: well, congratulations I mean that's an exciting process and and um one of the things as I was thinking about that and thinking about the relic and a relic i mean and and some of the other projects that you've worked on um, to, do you have certain things cinematically in mind when you write? Or some people tend to flip point of views as a director might to show different angles and to build suspense. I mean, do you visualize things in a cinematic way so that it tends to be easy to translate it onto uh, onto the screen from the page?
0: I don't do that deliberately. um, But from the very beginning of my writing career, the way I write novels is I first picture the scene as if it's, on a screen or a movie screen or, you know, as if I'm standing there. So it's a completely visual thing. And then I describe what I see. So it's all very visual. Um, and it, it's not something I, I practiced or I don't do it deliberately. I'm not trying to, you know, write a a book that will be especially cinematic. It's just sure. that that's how I do it. It's funny because I talked to Link and he doesn't do it that way. He he says, You I don't see the scenes. I, I have them all in my head as a schematic. So like huh. a room to me I see the room. I see it. And to him yeah. the room is a schematic. So I guess we have two different minds. Who knows? I mean there's yeah, one, there's no, one way of Yeah, so I I don't know how about you? I mean do you do you visualize things or do you
1: I tend to hear them first. I tend to hear dialogue and then as I work on it I start to see the location and the setting but very often my first drafts or of scenes and so on is people talking is dialogue it just it's what i hear and then yeah. i begin to flesh it out so yeah yeah i i i like to write a scene until i can see it and so in some cases i'll work on something and i'll have dialogue i feel like, that that works well but i haven't i don't see the scene yet i know it still needs work then
0: Interesting. That's yeah. that's curious because I I don't really hear the dialogue, and your dialogue is probably a lot better than mine. <laughs> I, it's all visual. I'm, I do I do speak the dialogue in my head. Sure. But as far as hearing it, that's that's almost a step beyond. Um, but Lincoln, yeah, I think, I, hears dialogue. I hear
1: voices. So. <laughs> So, yeah, t- tell us a little bit about that, about working with a co-author, uh, working with Lincoln Child on, I think, have you done 15 novels together? Maybe it's more oh, than that
0: more. now. more. I think we've been, I, I couldn't tell you, but I think probably 25, maybe. Oh, my goodness, yeah. I'm not really sure.
1: So how how does that work as far as, you know, most authors have a vision for the way their, their story will go, um, and and yet collaborating with someone, you definitely need, to have, you know, two minds wrapping around one story. How do, you, how do you guys pull that off?
0: Well, Lincoln and I both have very similar minds. We, we think alike, and that really helps. Also, I have complete confidence in Link's judgment. You know, if he says to me, this isn't working, I, I really have to agree with him, even if I don't agree with him. I mean, I yeah. just... That's why you have a writing partner. You have to trust that person, and then he has to trust me when I say I don't. This isn't working. Like I just had a conversation with him where he'd written a five or six chapter outline and, of a new novel, and I said, you know, all these six chapters can become one. And he was really pissed off to hear that. He said, Well, if you think you can do better, you you write it then. So so I wrote it up. But um, the point is that so. So we plot the books together very, very carefully, and then we divide up the chapters so that I'm writing one thread and he writes the other. Then we swap the chapters, and I rewrite him, which really pisses him off. And he <laughs> rewrites me, which which makes me really annoyed. And uh, But that's somehow, you know, I, I identify the weaknesses in his work and cut it out. He identifies the weaknesses in my work. And as, as a result, I think the... The the books are plotted very tightly. There are no loose ends. I think the writing tends to be at a high level. Um, yeah. We both love the English language. At least that's what we hope. And uh, so that's how we work. And then, I mean, writing is generally a very lonely business. And I know when writing my solo book, sometimes I feel absolutely in despair. I just think, what am I doing? This book is terrible. Where am I going to go? <laughs> Whereas with Lincoln, I can call him up and say, Lincoln, the book's terrible. It's awful. Where are we going to go? And he'll, I, I'm going to kill myself. And he'll say, <laughs> oh dog, calm down, calm down. Let's let's work through this and find out what it is that isn't working for you, and and work it out." So it it ends up being a, a whole different experience. I must say, I just really enjoy working with Lincoln.
1: Yeah, the mutual respect. Um, I mean, the respect that you have comes through clearly. And that trust the, to be able to say, okay, look, I trust you, and in in giving me some of these changes. But of course, as authors, we we never want anyone to, to. We want everything that we write. That's amazing, but sometimes you know, having an objective eye that you trust can definitely definitely help the story grow.
0: It is, yeah, it, it is. It it's definitely having two eyes on it helps, and. You know, sometimes people think, well, how, how, can you, how can that really be a creative process? But there are many, many creative processes that, res, that involve more than one person. I mean, in the, in the Renaissance, for example, uh, many of the great Renaissance artists, multiple people worked on those paintings. The great frescoes in the Brancacci Chapel were painted by both Masolino and Masaccio, the frescoes that launched the Renaissance. I mean, some of the greatest movies ever made ever written were written by teams of writers like casablanca for example or you know so so the idea that there's a lone genius at work is not really a valid i think creative idea because some of the most beautiful things ever created were created by teams of people you know the duomo in florence that gorgeous building i mean brunelleschi's dome but there were other architects who did the other parts of it um you know it's uh it's just so so i don't think having two people interferes with the really creative process right um in the way some people might think
1: no i just i could see it as a challenge uh especially i i tend i write organically i don't outline or plot out my books and um so i can just imagine how maddening it would be for someone who <laughs> who wants to know exactly where the story is going to go and I'm writing and I I I it would be impossible for me probably to collaborate with someone.
0: Well it it it, it it's interesting it is a challenge so but anyway
1: Now I remember at like at one point in your career many years ago you packed everything you owned into a car and moved out to New Mexico to become a full-time writer What about that old advice people give, don't quit your day job? It sounds like quitting your day job was almost the first step that you took.
0: Well, you know, it's good advice. Well, what happened was, you know, I had this great job in New York City um, working for the museum. And then after that, I worked for a company, um, a British company in New York. And I saved up a lot of money. I saved up like $50,000. I mean, I had all this money. And I just published my first book, which didn't do that well. I mean it was you know i was very modest, a modest success. The book Dinosaurs in the Attic," which is the one about the Museum of Natural History, sure, and I thought, well, I've got this fifty grand um and I can live on this for two years, you know if I'm careful, but I can't live in new york so right. i I moved to a place that would be a lot cheaper to live, which was at the time Santa Fe, New Mexico, even though i'd you know, I'd never been there before. I don't know. It's crazy to move to a place you've never been to, but I just thought, ah, what the heck. So, yeah, so yes, I think there is, to a certain extent, quitting your day job is not a bad idea if you're not going to impoverish yourself and, and starve to death. You know. And
1: it's interesting because I, I, I really do agree. I mean, at writers' conferences and events, sometimes I'll talk about about that old word of advice and quit your day job, and I'll say, you know, for me, I couldn't make a living until I did quit my day job. And for some people, it just means quitting your day job mentally. So when someone says to you, what do you do? You're like, well, I'm a writer. Well, how do you pay the bills? Well, I teach as well, but I'm a writer. Yeah, good. Yeah, that's
0: good.
1: Yeah, and so eventually, once you start to envision yourself as this new identity of being a writer... Sure, we we all have to pay the bills and sometimes you know, you you work at a checkout line or whatever it might be, you sell makeup or something, but but at your heart of hearts, once you make that decision, you say I'm a writer, um I you know, to me there's a huge change in your perspective.
0: So when did you quit your day job then? When when was that?
1: Well, probably ninety I would say ninety eight, nineteen ninety eight.
0: Wow, that was, and a long, so I
1: started to yeah, I started to write, but also to travel and speak, so I would, my master's degree is in storytelling, actually, and so ah. I would often do conferences or solo performances storytelling and and then I had three little girls, and I didn't want to be gone all the time, I did not want to be on the road two or three hundred days a year. I wanted to see my kids grow up and so I started to stay home and write books instead of traveling and tell the stories. I still was a storyteller, and and um, so eventually it shifted more toward writing than traveling quite quite as much. So it's always mm-hmm. been those two those two facets for me. But it's always about how do you tell a great story that really impacts people. And when you were talking earlier too, I that was interesting. My, my my thesis for my master's degree was how to. How to tell personal stories. In other words, cra- it was called fictionalizing truth, crafting personal experience stories. And the question really was, how much can you change a story that you tell and still claim it's true? <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah. so you were talking about how important the facts are. You're right. I mean, getting the facts right and still telling a story. But, but um, I think you said something like 90% of what you end up researching, you end up not using. Um, and that's that process of of shaving off what's irrelevant or what might be interesting but doesn't it, it doesn't fit contextually, and and finding the story. And and uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with the expectations of your readers or your audience. If you were say telling stories, is mm-hmm. if you if you write a book and you say based on true events, well, it changes the expectations that people have for it. Um, You know, when the Coen brothers did Fargo, they said this is based on true events. And everyone watched this movie said, what? This is crazy. Who ever heard of this stuff before? And then, of course, about ten years later, they came out and said, oh, no, we made that all up. That was (laughs) was completely just made up. But, you see, it changes the way that people view it. And their expectations have been changed and altered. And so I think one of the big keys, really, for all of us as storytellers is matching up the amount of truth in what we tell with what readers expect in that, whether it's a novel or a nonfiction.
0: Well, very, very interesting. Yeah, that, that yeah. that's all very true. Yeah.
1: Well, this has been a great conversation, man. I, I really enjoy hearing your stories, and um, and I want to really encourage all of our listeners to go check out The Lost City of the Monkey God or, or really any of your novels. And for someone who's not familiar with, with your novels or some of your other work, where would be a good place to start? I know some people like to start at the beginning. Some people like to start with the most recent. Where would you point people to in your fiction?
0: Well, in my fiction, I would definitely recommend people read uh, either uh, The Relic or Relic the movie was called The Relic. The book is called Relic. Sure. <laughs> or um, I especially recommend The Cabinet of Curiosities. Mm, nice. Um, that, that's the book that, by the way, they're, they're now making that book into the TV series Pendergast. Oh, it's, excellent. Um, at least that'll be the first season, that, that particular book. But it's a great introduction to Pendergast and to the whole Gothic kind of milieu of the Museum of Natural History.
1: I have The Wheel of Darkness here in front of me. It's it's probably, I think it came after The Cabinet of Curiosities.
0: Though. It did, yeah. It actually, God, I hate to badmouth my books, but I'd say that's probably one of our weakest. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Don't read that one first.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, it's uh, if you've written 25 books, clearly there will be some that you'll say, man, this was a favorite or this, you know, was a... Was one that we felt was one of the greatest better ones, and so on like that, so you know people ask you what's your favorite Well, i don 't know what to tell them you know
0: <laughs> well, it is your books are kind of like your children, but yeah i do I do certain with the novels I have some that I feel were much more successful than others. I mean, you know Lincoln and I always try to write the best, freshest, the most you know try to not ever fall into a rut, but once in a while we it just doesn't quite click the right. way another one does. So yeah. I think Wheel of Darkness is probably the the least, one of the least clicking of the of our novels. Um,
1: but see, it takes a mature, like, writer, really, to sort of say something like that, too, to, to look at any one of your books and say, well, you know, okay. things didn't quite click the way we hoped and move on. So, yeah, that's
0: cool. Yeah, well, it, uh, yeah.
1: Now, um, before we close up, do you have any last words of advice for maybe aspiring writers or um, even fiction or nonfiction, really? Any uh, maybe mistakes that you frequently see in the work of aspiring authors or maybe some that haven't kind of moved up to the next level?
0: All right. Well, let's my main piece of advice is to remember that it's a career, not a book. I've seen so many aspiring authors get hung up on that first novel they've written, revising and re-revising and sending it out and getting rejections. And, and I mean, I've seen this process go on for five or ten years. Um, every novelist I know has a first novel sitting in a desk drawer or on a CD of a disc right. published. And the reason is because you learn how to write a novel by writing a novel. So the first one is usually not any good. So you write your first novel, go ahead, send it out, If you, but immediately start work on the second. Don't get hung up on that novel. That's my first piece of advice. So, And my second piece of advice is treat it like you would if you were a concert violinist. You need to practice every single day for at least an hour a day. I mean right. seven days a week. Don't take the weekends off. Don't treat it like a nine-to-five job. Treat it like either you're working out, um, you're, you know, working out in terms of exercise or you're trying to play the violin to reach Carnegie Hall. You got to do it every day.
1: Well, that is good advice. And I know when I think back over the many years, all of my friends will say things like, well, is this your day off or when was your last day off? And I'm thinking, man, I've been writing every single day that I know of this year. And, and, um, but it's encouraging to hear you say that. Say, I'm not the only one out there who gets into the stories, into the books, and you just power away at it, and you have to. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, that's, that's right. You got it.
1: Well, thanks again for your time, uh, Doug. And um, we want to have people check out your books and also maybe connect online. Where's the best place to follow you or maybe see when you might be doing a book signing or when your latest release comes out?
0: Well, you can check our website, PrestonChild.com, or you can go to our Facebook page, which is Preston and Child. Um, Those are probably the two best places to go.
1: Excellent. And uh, for information about my novel writing intensive retreats and uh, the other teaching that I do around the country, you can go to stephenjames.net or Twitter feed, read Stephen James. And for more information about all of our guests and to check out more broadcasts, Click to the storyblender.com and folks, always remember.
0: The art of the story is all in the blend.
1: We'll see you next time.